continue our stewardship series this week. We are finding our way into the Gospel of Luke, in the 18th chapter, 9th through 14th verses. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, and they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tenth of all of my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Going back to my children's moment this morning kind of takes me back. When my brother was a baby, he had a pale blue receiving blanket. It was soft to the touch with a two-inch band of satin around the edge. It kept him safe and warm. And as he grew, his fondness for that blanket grew. In time, it became his very own security blanket. And heaven help us if you were the one trying to settle him down and you couldn't find that blanket. As my brother learned to talk, for some reason that old blue blanket earned the nickname Bianchi. If he was upset or fussing, he would holler for his Bianchi and the entire household would scramble to find it. He dragged Bianchi everywhere he went and it often got very dirty. My parents learned very quickly to launder Bianchi along, with, uh, long, long after my brother had settled down for the night. So they would lean into the crib or the, his bed and they would take Bianchi really quickly. They would put it in the washing machine, dry it real quick, and try to make sure it was back in before he woke up. My brother was particularly fond of rubbing the satin over his cheek, and over the years the satin edge became worn and frayed. Whenever life wasn't going his way, or he was not feeling well, or he was tired, or if he was just frightened, my brother would scream for his Bianchi. Only after his Bianchi was firmly back in place, and he had comforted himself with the soft satin, would order be restored. So our story this morning has everything to do with my brother and his affinity for that blanket. Our Pharisee, you know the one, the one who's boasting and going on and on about himself and his capacity to be righteous, utilized the Torah, the Levitical or Jewish laws, as his security blanket. His adherence to those laws and his capacity to follow those laws were comforting and secure to him. If he could stay within the lines of what Scripture said, then he was being a successful and a faithful servant. Straying away from the Scripture meant losing that sense of security and comfort 
just as happened to my brother when he strayed away from his Bianchi. Some of us find ourselves standing in this space. We desire a black and white description of right and wrong so that we can stay firmly on the path. Nuance or uncertainty for some of us means we have no clear destination and can astray easily. It is easier than when you have explicit rules to follow. It is easier when you're not allowed to interpret the law or see it from other angles or perspectives. Black and white, a literal reading of Scripture has become the method of choice for some of our brothers and sisters seeking comfort and security even in today's world. I agree. Understanding the complexities of Scripture, knowing about context that surrounds the scripture, the stories and cultures that inform the authors and writers of the text leads me to really hard places. This information leads me to question the authenticity of some stories and validity of others, requiring me to have a patient and unwavering dedication to understanding and living in that nuance or uncertainty. Sometimes even I want to revert back to the Bianchi, right? To have a clear and definitive definition of what it means to live a faithful life, just like our Pharisee, to have a clear, explicit definition. And it's really hard standing smack dab in the middle of reformation of epic proportions. The world in which we live in is changing day by day by day. It's always changing. Sometimes I just want the security of that old-time religion. It was really easy just to read something and feel like that was it. I want to feel the comfort, the security that I once felt in that church, in that what I thought was a safe space. All this reforming is wearing me out. I'm tired of thinking so much. I'm tired of reforming my ideas. I'm tired of leaving and learning new things. And I'm tired of all the questioning. I'm tired of the questions. I want some answers. Sometimes I just want that mighty fortress to keep me safe. Sometimes I just want the Almighty Father to say, There, there, it will be all right. But in the words of dear old Martin Luther, We are Protestants. We follow this Reformation path. Martin Luther said, Here I stand, for I can do no other. Smack dab in the middle of a Reformation, trying to follow Jesus. Jesus who said that everything could be summed up in two commandments. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Sometimes I think, wish Jesus would have left out that mind part. <laughs> it would have been a lot easier not to have to wrestle with some of these things, the hard things, right? Asking those questions. But then Jesus did say, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. It's going to be all right. I think to myself it would be easy black and white, always is. However, with the events of our day, we cannot let it stand. Not when a black and white reading can lead to oppression, racism, bigotry, and abuse. A person who shall remain nameless, somebody I've known most of my existence, has taken the past week to really open up to me. 
She's coming to a point in her life where she believes it necessary to cut the charade and let her family, her recently separated husband and children know that she is gay. The quest to be honest about her sexuality is a daunting and complex path. She lived her life to this point trapped in a home and a family that expected, and you know what I mean by expected, heterosexuality. Expected a husband. Expected children. Expected she be devoted to one's husband, no matter what. Even if it meant living in a spiritually, emotionally, and physically abusive environment. Her mother, someone I know and have always respected, lives by a specific set of rules, ones that are black and white and come from the New Testament that we recognize. She and her husband attend faithfully the local non-denominational congregation. She reads the scriptures literally. You know, as if the only means of obtaining information from scripture is understanding it word for word. Therefore, when a specific translation of Leviticus or Romans says something explicit about homosexuality, you know what that means. The only reasoned response is it's wrong. It's an abomination. It cannot be your natural orientation, for they believe God does not condone it. Therefore, it is not a viable option. Not only do they believe that she is to suppress her true identity, but she is also expected to stand by her man at all costs, no matter what the circumstance or situation. She's to believe that he has changed since their separation and he is going to be a solid husband and role model for the kids. Now, I'll be the first one to admit, okay, I wish, I hope, I pray for the capacity of people to change their ways. But I'm not so sure that her mother and I are looking through the same lens when it comes to change and what's best in this situation. It's bewildering that her mother believes living in an abusive relationship with young children as witnesses is being encouraged based on her black and white interpretation. Yet seeking the strength to say no more, I don't deserve this and my children do not deserve this is being discouraged. That living a lie, an unfulfilling life, is more honorable than living a fully engaged and authentic existence where true happiness and love can be found. Her mother's reading of scripture leads her to believe that being gay is an abomination and living in submission to her husband, no matter the situation, is encouraged and approved by divine fiat. The black and white reading of scripture comes with its own problems. When suffering occurs because those who require a literal interpretation demands its reading, we must recognize there's a breaking point. The point where we must let go of our desires to be in control and let God provide us with the truth. We've come a long way from the easy answers, the black and white way of life of the past, and our Bianchis are pretty frayed around the edges. And there's not much satin to comfort us. So much of the security that our faith used to offer us has frayed away from us as well. Science has taught us that the cosmos is so much bigger than we had ever imagined, right? And that we have other ways and, and, and means of looking at stories and myths. They don't comfort us the same way they used to. 
because we have other ways of hearing them. Biblical scholarship has exploded and volumes of information about the writings of scriptures, the historical Jesus and the early Christians has left us wondering about the authority of scripture. Psychology, biology, medicine, anthropology, sociology, and even methodologies have left us questioning what we once held as gospel truth. We're the most highly educated people uh, who have ever lived on this planet, and we are living smack dab in the middle of the information age. Added to all the information at our disposal is the complicating fact that our neighbors are closer to us than they ever have been before. Luther didn't have to really meet or, or interact or engage with a Hindu or a Sikh, a Buddhist, okay? I dare say an atheist or agnostic, but you and I have. So standing here in the midst of this, what are we to do? What is the church to do? How are we supposed to love God in the midst of all this? Well, one thing we must do is not ignore the truth. Not if we're going to continue to follow Jesus. Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. We don't need to be afraid of the truth. So where we get that information, how we get that information is coming to us. The truth will set us free. It is time for us to take a page out of Luther's book and like Luther, we need to proclaim that truth that it is and that truth is in us. So if we look back at our scripture lesson today, Jesus is teaching against an attitude that can be in all of us. Sometimes we want to peg it on the Pharisee and say that he's it, right? He's the bad one. He's the one who's trying to take and create this black and white image. Nope. That can be all of us. It's not just behavior found only in one group of individuals. We can all be self-righteous. We can all look down on other people, especially those not of our group. We have a tendency to say that if you do not read the scriptures the same way I do, you are not correct. The hearers of Jesus' parable this day were floored and enamored that the Pharisee and all of his devotion, right, all of his devotion and what he, his virtue was not the one that was accepted by God. Much like some of our little Christians today. Jesus flipped that script. The humble received mercy and are justified. And those confident in their own righteousness and, and look down on others receive nothing. Now we're in the midst of our stewardship campaign. And I'd be amiss if I did not bring forward an antidote that follows this narrative a kind of discussion as to why we give and how we should give. With that said, you've got to follow me here. The two characters present, and they represent positions at opposite ends of the social spectrum and spiritual scale. The Pharisee is respectable, the tax collector despised. The Pharisee stands to pray, and the tax collector stood afar off. The Pharisee recounts his accomplishments, the tax collector knows he needn't bother. The Pharisee begins by thanking God for having made him such a swell person, not like the others. He recounts his spiritual accomplishments, which include such laudable acts as double fasting and tithing and his entirety of possessions. The Pharisee thanks God that he is not like other people and then specifically identifies these others as extortionists, the unjust, adulterers, and even like that tax collector over there. All others in the Pharisee's eyes 
are guilty of robbery and violence, unrighteousness, injustice, and sexual immorality. The Pharisees' prayer, one also notices, is remarkably short on what God has done for him and rather windy on what he has done for God. The tax collector, by contrast, beats his breast. An expression of humility and self-accusation looks down at his shoes and says simply, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. You know what Jesus says? This is the guy who goes home right with God and not the other. But I want to keep moving a little further with the scripture and, and do a little exercise. Most of us approach this scripture with, that's fine for this week. The snooty Pharisee gets his come upperance, right? And the tax collector with a heart of gold catches a break. How heartwarming. One is so caught up on his giving, his ritualistic giving, that fails to recognize that none of it really matters if you're going to approach God in giving in such a manner. If we were to move to the next week and say the same two guys show up in the temple, the cleanly attired and clean-minded Pharisee reminds God again how devote he is while his week, while this week the tax collector shows up again with his whiskey breath and a blonde on each arm and intones the same, I'm a jerk, let me off the hook anyway, prayer. Black and white kind of gives us a new perspective there. Those seeking the black and white perspective, and most of us would hope for a change in behavior and expect a different outcome. They believe that the rules are being broken and that the tax collector is not following his duty. Some of us would expect the same thing. It's not right. It's not fair, right? Something would have to change in Jesus' perspective. Guess what? The Pharisee would again not be justified. And the tax collector again would be. Week after that, same thing. Week after that, same thing. How heartwarming is the story now? Some of us get entangled and, and, and meshed with that. You're thinking that the story is fine at the start, but in the future we expect some amendment of behavior on the part of the tax collector. In other words, while the Pharisee is clearly going overboard, right, we want the tax collector to start acting like one anyway. Some, commentator, some commentators wonder exactly where the tax collector repented. Fact is, he didn't. And it wouldn't have mattered a bit, even if he did. The story's not about our righteousness, after all. Not about our piddly attempts at self-improvement. Not about our crying our eyes out or feeling suitably bad about ourselves. It's quite the contrary. Our situation is always hopeless. The twist is that even when we're at our best, such as the Pharisee, we're actually worse off than we were before we shaped up. Now we're under the illusion that we're special or that we're better. There has a technical name, we call it Lutheran irony, right? It means that even when we think we're close to God, especially then, our self-righteousness and thinking so means we're actually further from God than we were to begin with. 
Now let me just kind of put a parenthesis around this. With that said, be careful. The scripts could easily turn on us. For example, we should be humble and sincere and not self-promoting in our prayers or in our lives. Yet the minute we start saying, I want to be more like the tax collector, we begin to climb up the ladder of the Pharisee, making sure we are doing what's necessary to win God's approval, checking off lists and examining our prayers to make sure they are sincere enough. Have I beat my breast hard enough this time? Am I sincere enough in my prayers? I don't know. Let's check around to others and see what we're doing and, and if it's good enough this time. And then we get to the infamous comparison game we love so much. I thank God I'm not more like the other people or those, that Pharisee over there. And it's easy to do the Pharisees. Checking our behavior is a familiar trap. Am I humble enough? Am I praying enough? Am I giving enough? More than someone else, that is. The problem is that kind of thinking makes God into a God who can be manipulated by what we do, by human behavior, by human works. And once we think about the ramifications of a God who justifies us based on what we do, well, I don't want to think about it. It would mean that we see God as a wrathful, weak God, a God who punishes us when we step out of line, rewards us when we do well. In fact, we set God up to be like the unjust judge that comes in a previous parable and one who can be worn down by our continually coming and finally relents and then finally helps us. That's not God. Truth is, we just need to remind ourselves that we're hopeless and that God is the master of impossible situations. Even more fortunately in terms of his love and mercy, God doesn't care a whit about the Pharisee's spiritual accomplishments or whether or not the tax collector has one blonde on his arm or three. The Pharisee went before God dressed in his spiritual finery, and this is where we come to, the tax collector naked and bare. That's why the story scares us. Who wants to stand naked before others? Who wants to stand naked before God? At the same time, the story is the very heart of the good news. God sees all about us and knows all about us. Every fraudulent act, every whiff of envy, every resentment, every act of self-deception and throws all of it out the window. None of that matters. We can't control God. Our actions don't control God. One thing matters. Christ's death at the hands of sinners and his resurrection in the power of God that saves them. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, there is a desire to identify the bad and the good. We observe the consistent giving of the Pharisee and his orientation to the tithe, giving one-tenth of all that he had. And we are tempted to draw some conclusions about his consistency, observation of ritual, and the way that he set himself apart and the desire to best follow God's will. He would not be the first person or the last to focus on so deeply indebted rules and rituals that he forgot the overarching point. The ministry and witness he is called to do is way more than that. In our desire to faithfully observe our tradition, our beliefs, we are quick to place those around us in categories. We know in our heart and our mind's eye 
that we are called to serve the world and demonstrate God's love to all. Sometimes we find ourselves in deep debate about the rules, the framework, the rituals, and the way that we believe a faithful person should behave. Have you ever become so focused on the rules, so focused on the regulations and the rituals of faith that you lose sight of the real reason why we give, why we share our gifts, or have outreach at all? God has given us so much. And we need to step back and allow God's presence to be real. Don't allow things to get in our way, allow things to be distractions, a mindset saying it has to be this way. We are asked to give of our time, our money, our strengths, and our passions, not because our rule book tells us to do it. We don't boast in our giving. We don't expect it to bring us an elevated standing in the community or church. We give these things because we shall not become dependent on them. We give these things because we are broken. And a removal of these things in our lives will help us to find healing and hope in God and God alone. Not our own standing, our own wealth. Not our things. Not our rituals. Not our dedication to an easy, comfortable relationship with a black and white you. But a relationship with you.